Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Welcome everybody to Mental Status. My name is Meg and I am your host. This is a podcast about burnout in the mental health profession. And today I am joined by a very special guest and someone who I have gotten to know a little bit better over the past several weeks. So I'm super excited to have them on the show and I'd like to let them introduce themselves. So special guest, who are you, where are you, and how are you doing today? Well, hi, Meg. Thank you for having me. Um, My name is Diana Kelly, and I'm a lot of things. I'm a a cisgender, white, Latino, sober veteran. Um, I'm also a bonus mom to an awesome 20-year-old woman who's much smarter than I am. (laughs) um, I'm also a wife, but I'm also a clinical social worker and a lecturer at the IU School of Social Work here in Indianapolis. Um, So that is where I am. I'm in my home office right now, and today I'm doing really well. Um, today it's what 10 a.m., so mm-hmm. I already went for my my walk and listened to my podcast, and I got my coffee and I got my dog. So today, so far, so good. Nice, glad to hear it. That yeah. sounds like a, a pleasant way to start your day is with a walk and some podcasts. It's new. <laughs> it's a new. It's a new thing, which I'm sure I'll talk about in a little bit. But it's a good way. Yeah. To today. yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, we can, um, we can just dive right in. So tell us a little bit about your burnout story. Where have you been? Um, yeah, so my burnout story is, uh, in progress. Like (laughs) I think a lot of our burnout stories are, but, um, I, it started, I can definitely tell you it started being a college student and hearing a little bit about burnout, but more like, hey, this might happen and eat some chocolate and take a bath about it. Um, But I always had that thought, like, I've been through some shit. Like I, I, at that point had been, you know, Afghanistan in the army. I'd been in Iraq in the army. Like, um, you know, I'm thinking like this, this talk is for other people. Like this isn't going to apply to me. Um, And then I got my absolute dream job working for the VA um, in Indianapolis, I had been working there in the research department as I was going to grad school. Um, but then during my internship, I started working in the substance use disorder recovery program. Um, and it was, it was great. It was awesome. And then, uh, I was there for, I want to say about four years. Um, and no one, no one ever told me, (laughs) No one ever told me what was happening um, <laughs> until it was too late. <laughs> uh, yep. 
No one, ever, no one was ever like, hey, why don't we sit down and have a conversation about what you're doing? And it wasn't until I left that position until I was able to reflect and see, which I'll get into. But, you know, it was in the middle two of, of the the middle of the opiate crisis. And we were still actively, you know, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And we had we had so many people that needed help. Um, and here I was, you know, this, this social worker that was fairly new out of grad school who had done my practicum in this agency um, and wanted to just help everybody and save everybody. And again, mm-hmm. knowing, knowing now what I, if I knew then what I knew now, um, it'd be a whole different story. But so much of what I was doing was just deeply rooted in white supremacy. I wanted to save everybody. If if, you know, I wanted that client because I could only help them. And, you know, it just became this overwhelming thing where it was client after client, after client, after client, after client, every mm-hmm. single thing I could do it. And if somebody presented with, um, you know, OCD on top of substance use disorder, like I'm diving into like ERP books, having no formal training, like trying to learn all the things, trying to do all the things. And then I had this poor sweet intern um who I want to just tell her I'm so sorry (laughs) she she had to like is all of that madness towards the end of my being there um so that that ended um not well I I got to a point where I I could not I couldn't fathom coming into work again um and you know, my, my nights, I, I, I was not coping well with everything that was happening. And I had nobody to be like, Hey, what's going on? Um, I literally would run to my car, like after I would see a client (laughs) and the closest store to work was this Walgreens that was like a mile away. I would leave with two bags of unwrapped Starburst and a bottle of Merlot and go home and just like do that five times a week yeah, and still try to help people. Like, so no one was ever like, Hey, maybe you should check something here. So I did that for a very, very long time until it just was like, you know what? I need to find something else. And I looked for maybe two days and got an offer to work at a nonprofit um, to help men that were recently released from the department of corrections in a very rural part of Indiana. Um, and I think I was so burned out and not coping well and just not doing well in general that I jumped at that position without weighing my options. Like I just wanted out. Yeah. Like I just wanted out. And here's the thing, like, again, looking back, those are my people. That's what I love to do. It was my passion. So much of my burnout was being created by myself. Like I'm not going to, the system is also (laughs) responsible for a lot of it, but I also had a lot of responsibility for my own burnout. But um, then I went to this nonprofit and my mind was blown because I was like, what, what just happened? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) My, like, again, like coming from working from a federal government agency 
to having all these resources under one roof, having other social workers, other people, other things, and then coming to a nonprofit where literally it was just me and 20 men who were recently released from the Department of Corrections. And it was just like, here you go. (laughs) Oh, boy. And what just happened here, right? So yeah. that was a, a different type and different form of um, of burnout all in itself in that it was just a culture shock from going from this kind of organization to this type of organization, not to mention um, a lot of the systemic pressures with working with agencies like Department of Corrections and Community Corrections, especially in, in rural Indiana. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of, of fighting, not only the nonprofit, because they were very antiquated and um, not very evidence-based practice in terms of what they were doing. And then also working and fighting against that system of community corrections. Like they wanted, they wanted every single detail and knowing everything about every single resident. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're not doing that today. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not the one. Mm-mm. Like but I can see how if you were a young social worker and didn't have this lens, how it's so easily you could fall into, you know, that role of kind of siding with the oppressor and being involved in that system, right? So it was just a constant fight of like, why naloxone's probably a good idea when somebody is released from our program and is now just kind of living on their own or living on the street or, you know, like fighting these systems about harm reduction and, yeah aid and um, how, no, I'm not going to report every single thing this, this person says in group like that. I'm not doing that. That's not happening. And Diana, why are you going to court and advocating on behalf of these, these folks? I'm like, why not? Like, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a lot of, of like, I, I, again, I, these are my people. I love the work. I love what I was doing. It was the system that was creating so much stress and my own like desire to continually fight that without any kind of support, any other, like it was me on this island, like doing this by myself. So that created a different type of burnout. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> uh, I had been, I was an adjunct faculty member for a couple of years, um, just teaching like one course a semester, mostly group work. Cause I absolutely love group work. Group works my jam group work. Like, amazing. Love group work, love teaching group work. Um, and so I was an adjunct, but then a position opened for a full-time lecturer position at the university and went through that whole process. And I was so excited. And I remember, <laughs> I'll never forget this. I looked at somebody that was on the interview panel and she's like, yeah, we're really excited to have you. I was like, yeah, I know, like a totally different type of like stress. Or I was like, I'm so looking forward to not, not being as stressed out as I was, you know, when I was in the community. And she looked at me and I know that look because I've given it to people before where it's like, oh, honey. <laughs> and then she just smiled politely and was like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> So yeah, I venture into academia as this, you know, lecturer. This is pre-COVID, right? 
trying to find my footing, realized I really still missed like direct practice and doing that stuff. And I wanted to still stay relevant as I teach. Like I didn't want to be teaching something and not have that like, hey, I know exactly what you're like. I didn't want to be far from it. Right. So I got some really good advice from somebody. They're like, you know, get your feet wet, get your feet a little bit wet in terms of like teaching how that flows, how that feels. But you know, because of my own stuff, I'm like, no, I'm good. I could do all of it. Right. I, I, I can do all of it. Like Diana, did you not just learn that you just <laughs> like, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't, I didn't listen. And I went, you know, all feet in and started doing all of this. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm starting to feel very stressed and very unregulated and very burned out. And I'm like, how does, how does this happen? Like, how do you get, how, how do you get burned out when you don't even, like, you're not even seeing people regularly. Right. Um, and then COVID happened. Um, yeah. And I'll never, I'll never forget. I was sitting in a classroom with, with these amazingly brilliant students. And it was the night, like the MBA shut down, like when everybody knew and like, on everybody's phones, it was almost like one phone here, one phone here, one phone here, like one student's kid's school closed, one other, you know, another student's uh, kid's school closed, and then the NFL or NBA stopped playing. So like, that was the last in-person class we had, and it was like 18 months ago, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, then it was this pivot to moving everything online, and my imposter syndrome of how do you teach online? How I have to have this, I have to do this right. Like I'm, this is my first year teaching. Like, again, all this internal stuff of like, not good enough. Like I want them to know that I know what I'm talking about and how do I do this? So a lot of this internal, like you have to do this. Right. And so again, we all thought it was short term. So I'm like, if I can get through the spring semester, like this is cake, right? Like it'll be fine. So Mm -hmm. We all know that didn't happen. And in the summer, I was tasked to teach group work online. Um, I fortunately was was tasked with developing this course with another phenomenal, amazing human um, colleague of mine, Rand Warden. And there, if I would have done this by myself, I would have been a lot drunker than what I already was, which I'll talk about. (laughs) but they saved me. Um, So to collectively, we built this course, but what we did was try to find other people that were in the same boat that we were. Um, But even then, like, it wasn't just this one course. I had three other courses that I had to do this with. Right. And again, like none of it was created. It was all kind of like, here you go. Like we have to do this and we're all in this mode. So again, this imposter syndrome and this, I have to do it and I have to do it well. And I have to have all of it. And I have to have the, I mean, just so much internal, like I sat in this office for sometimes like, so it, it was ridiculous. Um, and then that's just before even classes started, right? Like this is just summer. Uh, <laughs> Like there was no summer, right? We were all locked in here anyway. There was no summer. So I found, you know, after doing that, I would, I would go down, have wine, try to do it again the next day, wake up super foggy, super hazy, super anxious. That was my summer. Like 
work, 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 drink, 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 work, 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 drink, 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 drink. Um, and then wondering why I'm so anxious. And why, Surprise. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I have this anxiety problem. Like, no, you have a wine in a can problem. Like you have a rosé problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a rosé is... <laughs> is fueling all of this, but I wouldn't recognize that until much later. So then the semester starts and Rand and I, you know, they are teaching one section, I'm teaching another section. Um, But like I said, luckily we connected with this group of other educators trying to teach group work online. And we had this mutual aid group that we met with every week, which was just phenomenal. Um, But still, once classes started, it was this really difficult separation between work and like work in life because my office is two feet from my, you know, from my bedroom. Um, This constant internal pressure of like, you have to do all of the things you have to reply to every single student. You have to grade everything now because you need to quote unquote, get caught up. Right. Like, so just this internal constant, like you're not doing enough, you're not producing enough. Yeah. Also, you're not learning about your racism enough, um, your biases enough, how you're perpetual. And here I am, like I'm, I'm learning about white supremacy, how I contribute and perpetuate white supremacy, and I'm doing it all day, which comes with an additional layer of like shame and guilt. And um, and I fell into this horrible cycle that at the end of the day, whatever time that was, um, that wine, wine helped. It helped really, really well until it didn't. Yeah. And, and as I'm looking, like, as I've, you know, reflected on it the last, you know, nine months, I'm like, that's always been the, the, the coping mechanism. Like that's, that's been, you know, when I was at the VA, when I was at the, like, there was always that that I fell back on when I wasn't doing well, when I'm doing well, I fall back on exercise. I fall back on walks. I fall, you know, like I fall back on these good things when I'm not in a good place. I fall back on unwrapped starbursts and Merlot or cans of bubbly wine with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so last semester I recognized, or was not last semester, it was semester before that. I'm like, I, I, I literally had a, a coming to like, I can't, this is not sustainable. This is not a life. This is not sustainable whatsoever. And I teach like acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavior therapy. And like, I teach all of the therapies. Right. Uh-huh. And here I am like, okay, I'm feeling all of this and I'm just doing exactly what, you know, like intellectually I know, but here I am doing that exact same thing. So it was layers and layers of, of just guilt and shame and mm-hmm. all that, that perpetuates, you know, the continued behavior. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, th- I mean, like, as you talk about that, um, that is such a common, um, such a common like mindset for folks who are in the helping professions or who know the skills and then don't use them. Like we have the logical brain that knows it. We can apply it. We know how to use these things. And then there's the emotional parts of ourselves that are like, ah, oh, but no, 
no, but something else is going to work better for me. Like everybody else should use that. But like, for me, it's wine and starburst. <laughs> That's oh what gosh. it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, even now I look back on like at pictures and, you know, again, I think just from being in the military and kind of having, you know, at a, cause I joined when I was 17 years old. So there's always been this component of like physical fitness and, you know, I, again, in, in reflecting and learning more about myself throughout this whole process, like I know exercise, um, eating well, nature, air, all that like is great for me. And so in every single time of burnout, I stopped doing all of those things. So like I would CrossFit, I would lift weights. Like I love fitness. Like if somebody asked me like your dream job, I'm like I would combine recovery and fitness in some way. And like, part of me is just like open a gym and let's just have mutual aid meetings afterwards. Like, I don't know how to do it, but you know what that let's just do it. So in reflecting, I realized like all of those things when I'm not doing well is exactly what I fall back on. So I'm like, why did nobody tell me like, Hey, so your teeth are purple and you put on about 40 pounds. Maybe we need to talk. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's review some of these habits here and see what's working yeah. and what's not. Yeah. Like I found seven bags of unwrapped Starburst in your car. Like, should we talk? <laughs> Like, oh, yeah. so yeah. So when you ask like your journey and where you've been now, now actually I'm, I'm so excited because I, I, and this is, this is part from that, a, a book that I'm reading right now. It's called, um, Oh, I, Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm going to completely blank on it, but I'll oh, how to quit like a woman by Holly Whitaker. And I love what she says. She goes, no things you can't fuck with. Like I, I know I cannot fuck with unwrapped Starburst. I cannot fuck with the comment section in Facebook on a politically charged post. No. It like Instagram after 10, prescription pills, canned wine. Like I know I cannot fuck with those things. I can fuck with Tazo tea. I can fuck with coffee. <laughs> I can fuck with exercise. <laughs> but like knowing the things that bring me and do me harm and knowing the things that do and bring me peace and joy and and figuring that out, right? Like has been part of this journey, which is actually kind of exciting because I have this like little book that I've been keeping like, Hey, what do you need when you're feeling this? What do you need when you're feeling this? Like, it's like a little, little mini toolkit, but I, I love this idea of like knowing what you can and can't fuck with. Like there's just certain things that I know are going to take me to a very bad place. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the things that we cannot fuck with, like I really, I enjoy that you brought that up because I think it is important for people to know, like, there's, there's probably going to be some shit that you just can't, you can't, if you, if you want to be feeling well and doing your best and not like engaging in things that are going to bring you to that dark place, there's going to be some stuff that you cannot fuck with. Yeah. So like I've shared on the show. Um, I, I think it was this, yeah, this July or whatever, I reached five years of sobriety, which like is a little wild for me even though I don't know, it's, it's normal to me now to not be a drinker, to not engage in that stuff. And I still know for myself, like if I go get an IPA or a wine tonight, that's something that I can't fuck with. Like it's going to, it's going to mess up a lot of stuff for me and I'm already like a ball of anxiety. So that's not going to be good. Yeah. Um, But I definitely like, I appreciate you bringing that up and being vulnerable about that because it's like, 
similar to burnout, which is something that a lot of people struggle to talk about anyway, adding on top of that, a struggle with substances or any other type of addictive behavior, whether that's alcohol or cannabis or nicotine, whatever it is like that, as we already know, carries such a stigma. So to add that on top of being a mental health provider who is struggling with burnout, like talk about the layers of shame and bullshit Uh, we, we put on ourselves and other people. Not to mention if you work in that field, right? Like I, I got into working in that field for reasons not related to my own, like my own history of substance use disorders, right? It was, um, it it was more to do with a lot of other stuff, but still it, it's so like, yeah, there's this level of shame and guilt and like, you should know, like, you know, all of the things, right? Like, why do you continue to do this? And I'll be honest, you know, I think sometimes in what I was doing, and I really had to wrestle with this, and it may not be popular uh, to think about, uh, but you know what, just sit with it, notice it. And I've been doing that (laughs) is like, Perhaps because of the way our society views quote unquote people that have alcohol, like even that term, like alcoholic, alcoholism, Mm -hmm. you know, substance use disorder, whatever, like maybe working in that field kept me in my own shit because I was able to rank it against the other people that I had worked with. Right. And that kept me like, you know what, if they're an alcoholic, I'm fine because I just go home afterwards and have, you know, a glass of wine, but I'm still able to get up in the morning and go to work. Like this guy's having seizures, you know, this, like, so in, and I've really wrestled with that because I'm like, you know, Diana, that that's fucked up. Like, and it's not, it's not me that's fucked up. It's the fact that our society views and labels it like you go on, you go online and you get, a, you know, like Holly Whitaker mentions this in her book too. So I don't want to feel like I'm stealing this or like making it my own, but it's been, it's, it's really interesting. Like I can go up and pull up a questionnaire, um, to turn myself alcoholic or not alcoholic. Like yeah. that, that just keeps you like in the shit. How about we just switch from saying, am I this or am I that to, Hey, is this serving me? Is this really, adding to my well-being. And frankly, for me, that's the, you know, the, the talk I had to have with myself, like, how is this helping? And there were some benefits, like, and I talk about that with folks that I work with, like, we have to be honest, like, there's a benefit. It worked really fucking quick and really, really well. But you know what? In the long term, it absolutely did not add to my life. It was not in service of what I was trying to do for myself, for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and something had to change. Right. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. I, I, I'm, I've really wrestled with that. Like is working in this field. Was it a way for me to check this box and say, you know what? I don't need to stop what I'm doing because I'm not like these other people. Right. Yeah. My, my alcohol use is, well, I'm questioning it, but, but I work in a, um, a rehab facility or a place that serves folks with uh, substance use disorders. And I, I quote unquote, I see what it actually means, blah, 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 to have that type of condition. That's not me. That's not right. Right. Um, And I, I think, yeah, like one of the things that was interesting for me in going into the field was I, 
I quit drinking prior to going into mm-hmm. internships, but my first internship was at a co-occurring um, disorders clinic. So folks with substance use disorders and mental health diagnoses, but in being like pretty newly sober <clears throat> about a year sober and going into work in these clinics, like I had somewhat of a different experience of like, I know that I hadn't necessarily reached my own bottom and I hadn't reached a point where like I was drinking in the mornings and drinking to, to stave off uh, tremors and all this kind of stuff. But I was, I, I didn't want to keep digging. Right. And so like working in an environment and seeing how, how these things do affect people and the stigma that is placed upon people and the way that they're treated when they come to these facilities that yeah. are supposed to help them. It's like, holy shit, holy shit. Like this is yeah. it's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. So yeah, on top of, you know, just the, the normal workload that you have of people, it's all this other vicarious shit that you, you deal with too, right? That, yeah, it, it's a lot. It is. It's a lot. And then not to mention if they're involved in certain systems, you know, and um, that in itself too is a huge barrier, especially for early career, newer, younger social workers or therapists who aren't sure how to navigate that. And so I talk about that a lot with, um, you know, my students, because again, if, if I'm in a position of being in an agency or interning in an agency. And there's people that are involved with these super oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. If I don't know the limits of what power I have as a worker, it could be really easy for me to succumb to that system and side with the oppressor. And that, that in itself is a level of shame and guilt because we want to help people. And when Mm -hmm. we find ourselves in a really tough spot, like you know, again, working with community corrections or child services or all of that, like we know in our heart, like we don't want, we don't, we don't want to criminalize substance use disorders, right? Like we don't want to keep people in these systems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that adds to, to the level of burnout, you know, especially if you don't have a good mentor or a good peer who can help you navigate your way through that. You know, I've had a lot of students tell me, they're like, I didn't know that I, I could do this when working with that system. I'm like, oh, hell yes, you can. (laughs) Yes, please do. (laughs) Please do. Don't just do whatever the system tells you to figure out what those, you know, what those limits of reporting are for your ages. So yeah, it's not just this micro level, you know, fighting, there's that right. Fighting our own burnout, our own um, vicarious trauma with a lot of these folks. But then again, the agency uh, rules and regulations, and then the system, like it's, it's a, it's a fucking fight. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not being involved in not just those types of systems, but systems at large. um, It is super easy for, for, early career therapists and those who, you know, they work within specific organizations or they're employed by the systems to really pull apart, like what their actual role is as a helping Mm -hmm. professional versus what, what these agencies are asking them to do, what they're actually required to do versus just like, you know, if you do this, you'll make them happy. It's so much to navigate. Yeah. It, it, it's so much to navigate. And again, if, if you don't have, you know, this is, this is why a lot of times 
you know, we've talked about this before, like finding that, by that unicorn agency, right. Yeah. That, that agency that, that isn't, that that's meeting and checking all these boxes that, um, I don't know, you know, again, for me in, in terms of substance use disorder, like finding agencies that are open to harm reduction, finding agencies that are aligned with not keeping people in these oppressive systems. Um, because, you know, frankly, there are a lot of agencies that make money from keeping people, especially people that struggle with substance use disorders, or that don't even struggle with substance use disorders that just got arrested for, you know, a um, for having a possession of marijuana or cannabis, right? They don't even necessarily meet any kind of diagnostic criteria. They just, yeah. they use marijuana and they got arrested for it because of the, you know, ridiculous laws that we have. But that's another, you know, um, but finding agencies that recognize that and then don't just profit off of that. Because again, I think that adds to that, that level of burnout as a worker when you just want to, you know, to help people and empower people yeah. um, and the agency doesn't, you know. Yeah. 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 Or it's like not necessarily in line with making the business profitable to, to just have that sort of benevolent nature and, and that good, that good natured giving. Um, yeah. and yeah, I mean, when you're, I know there's a band by the name, but when you're raging against the machine, <laughs> right? Like you're, you are as the worker, you're trying so hard to affect positive change and be, a support in the way that you originally set out to be for folks yeah, to be caught up in systems without having any prior knowledge of how to actually navigate them. It makes perfect sense to me that a lot of folks in this field would feel like they need to turn to something to help numb that feeling. Cause it's like, holy shit, like I want to do so good. And I have this within me and there's so much standing in my way. Yeah. It pisses me off. And so like, let me just, I'm just going to forget about it for tonight. Cause yeah, I'm going to drink yeah. I'm gonna, whatever. Um, but as you said, like the, the further you get into those <clears throat> maybe immediately helpful coping mechanisms, but long-term unhelpful coping mechanisms, it just like, at least for myself, when I was drinking, I found that it took a lot of my power away from myself to do the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. I found that in it again, you know, this is, this is, this is not a new journey for me. It's a different journey, but I'm recognizing that too, is that, you know, thinking I had all this power and control and in reality, like there was none when alcohol was involved. That's why it's in my list of things I can't fuck with. Like I'm, I'm not going to label myself. And that's, you know, that's one thing too, that we talked about, um, you know, before our meeting is like, you know, again, having all these resources and having all this knowledge about treatment of, you know, of people that struggle with, with substances or choose to use substances differently. Um, at, you know, in the pandemic, like there were, and I'm, I'm, I'm a well-resourced human, right. I know about yeah. these resources. I'm also a veteran and I have veterans benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the height of it, like I, I, I didn't know what to do and how, how she, like, again, I'm just thinking, I'm reflecting on it. Like with all that I just mentioned and the one place I went was AA, AA.org. Cause they had all these meetings of other people. Yeah. Um, and I'll say, and I met this group of folks from Atlanta and there was something I never quite, quite put my finger on in terms of AA. It's just something didn't fit, but you know what fit the human connection, the connection and safety I felt with these strangers from Atlanta 
who were like, Hey, you're struggling. We get it coming. You know, mm-hmm. like there, there was no judgment. There was no, um, you know, like, Oh, you know, you're from Indiana or you're, you know, there was nothing. It was just like, Hey, yeah, we get it. Come on in mm-hmm. now after, you know, nine months of, of being part of that, of that group. And I'm, I still am because of those folks, right. It's not necessarily about the AA principles. Um, again, there's, there's always been something. And especially as a woman, I think there's, there, there's definitely some interesting things in, in terms of looking at AA as a whole, it saved billions of people, millions of people. Um, and it's great for some. And again, for me, I, I, I have to say like, in that, in that time, like it saved me, right. The fellowship, the people that I was able to connect with through AA saved me. Um, and there's, uh, the 12 steps are amazing just to live a good life. Right. But mm-hmm. the fellowship and just having that, you know, I, like I, I, I teach group work. I love group work. Group work is amazing. Mutual aid is amazing, but to experience it in a time when I genuinely needed it as a human, not as a lecturer, a, you know, a, a social worker, like to see the power of how that impacted me in my life, yeah. um, just makes me even more excited to talk about like a mutual aid framework when helping other people. Um, yeah. because it, it, it really was, it was, it was so powerful just having other humans know your pain, know your struggle, feel like you're not alone in this world. Because, you know, at that time, that's all I had. I had my computer, my office and a Zoom link. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to connect. um, I mean, I also found that very helpful when I first, I mean, I say sober, I say quit drinking, like you could like, even in my mind, I still struggle with a way to categorize myself because of that internalized stigma. Yeah. But when I got sober, um, I didn't necessarily join AA. I went and joined in some meetings with friends who are also in recovery and I, I found them to be beneficial uh, to an extent. Um, but the way that I found community was actually through like an anonymous online blogging platform where I I would write about my story and write about what I was going through. And there were a bunch of other anonymous bloggers (laughs) out there who were like, Hey, us too. Like, we're just here. We're writing about it. We're getting it out. Uh, And even though it wasn't like face-to-face synchronous connection, like there was still something to that. Just like, okay, it's not just me. Like you can be a quote unquote, high functioning person in society, whatever that means, and still struggle really hardcore with drinking and feeling like it's out of control and you can connect with people and it's okay. Yeah. Um, And that was just, it led to a lot of good things in my life. And I I ended up starting Mm -hmm. um, like a creative writing group that it wasn't focused on people in recovery, but like a lot of people who identified as being in recovery ended up coming to this creative writing group that I started. And some of them said like, this is kind of my replacement for AA. And I'm like, we don't do anything like AA, here, <laughs> but, but that's cool. Like yeah. finding, finding people that you can be with, that you feel yeah. seen and heard. Yeah. That's really important. I, again, you know, being in, in group work has been my jam since I was an intern, right? Like there's, and especially I think with veterans, what made it so easy is veterans, there's always this like underlying connection, right? So connection is always just kind of built really, really easily with veterans. 
so I loved doing group work ever since I was an intern. And I don't think I was ever a part of a mutual aid support group myself until the last you know year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to, I think what's making it, what made it so powerful for me is I've always known the power of it from the lens of a provider um, and seeing it occur daily. I mean, I do groups five years, you know, like three times. Yeah. I did a lot of group work. And so I was able to see it from that lens. And so I know the power of it that way, but to intrinsically receive it and feel it over this past year, um, it just makes me so much more passionate about the power of connection, um, about the power of universality, because I think, especially with COVID, especially in private practice, Um, we're all so siloed and it's really hard to find connection right now if, unless we seek it out, right? Like, so yeah, being able to, to, to feel it from again, the provider perspective and then intrinsically as a human being that was suffering who needed it, um, is, is all the reason that I love to teach it. I love doing group work. I, I want to do more for providers, you know, in terms of, of being able to connect um, because, you know, again, I, I don't know if I talked about this last part, but I started dipping my big toe again into private practice, which is a completely different animal from working for the federal government and then nonprofit and now academia with a little bit of private practice work. And the, the woman that I work for in the private practice, she's been so great because she's like, you know, you can choose who you want to see. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember these, these lovely women had a networking event. Right. And so again, because I was just starting to dip my toe in, I went and we're all sitting there with the, and they brought donuts and um, they're like, so today we're going to talk about our niche. And it literally, like, if you can envision me, I'm sitting there biting into like this powdered donut. And I look around the room. I'm like, what are they talking about? Niche? <laughs> yeah. Like, because in, in, in both agencies, I work, like you get what you get. Like yep. someone's got OCD. You're, you're the therapist. Someone's got, you know, trauma. You're the therapist. Yep. You know, someone's got all these other, co- like, if you don't know it, you, sorry, like they're yours. So this whole idea that like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, you can actually like decide who you want to see. Like yeah. this is a new concept. For yes, me. absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I like same, I've, I've discovered that over the past, I don't know, even six months of my career where like, yeah. I've been in agencies too, where it's like, okay, here you go. Here's the client. Here's the client. Here's the client. And like doing the best that we absolutely can to serve these folks and like being in positions where it's like, you're the therapist. Like we don't have anybody else. So here you go. Um, and shifting from that and like all of the mindsets that come with that, like got to do it all, got to be good at yeah. everything, the ERP, the ACT, the DBT, the CBT, the whatever the fuck, <laughs> right? T, I got to get yeah. the T. Yep. I got to get all the PESI trainings. I got to get the certifications. They're going to send me 500 letters in the mail, trying to get me to buy more shit from them. Like it creates such an overwhelm when And then you can get to this point, like when you have that moment of realization where it's like, if, if, and when I choose to go out on my own, 
I can do my best work with the clients who's presenting problems I work the best with, the types of clients yes. I work best with. Yes. And I can network with people who serve other types of presenting problems and other types of clients and they'll be well taken care of. It doesn't have to be me. It exactly. Have to be me, which is like, holy shit, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and I think there's this element for me right now, especially with that is like this unlearning of, you know, unlearning and relearning. So like, again, yeah. in, you know, at the VA, in the community, there was like, there was no choice. Like you, this person presents, like you did their intake, you're their therapist. Like they, they're, they're yours. If you don't know how to treat OCD, you better learn. Um, so yeah, there's this pressure to, again, you know, I think in several of your other podcasts, people have been like, I have to know all of these evidence-based products. And and then when we try to learn all of them, like we're shitty at them because we don't, you know, we're not, we know them, but we're not using all of them. Right. And then there comes this imposter syndrome. And then Mm -hmm. am I doing what I should be doing? And then all of a sudden I'm scrolling on LinkedIn or on Indeed, seeing how much baristas are getting paid, you know, like, it's like, I can't do this. Yes. Yes. And so what, again, what's kind of been this new learning is like, you know what? I, I love, I love substance use. I love, I love like working with veterans. I love trauma. And so, you know what, I'm going to do the things that treat that. And I'm going to do it really, really, really well. Yeah. And if something comes up for OCD, autism, eating disorders, all of that, like, I'm not gonna, I'm, that's not, that's not my, like, I'm not doing that. That's yeah. just not what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. But again, there's, there's been this aspect of like, you know, if in the networking private practice, something comes up or if someone's like, does somebody know somebody, there's this overwhelming urge to want to do it. And I've again, noticing and like, where is this, where's this, I have to help. I have to save. like, where is this coming from? Even if I, yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Not to mention, like I talked about, you know, being Latino and veteran, like all of that shit's intertwined in there too. Like so much of our identities, or at least my identity of being a helper is intertwined in white supremacy, family, you know, veteran culture, all of that shit. And so I have to take a step back and be like, all right, now just sit. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You don't, Absolutely. you don't know, you don't, you don't need to do that. There's somebody out there who's amazing at, you know, at doing that. Why you, now nah, you're good. Just keep on a going. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think I'm pretty sure I did an early episode where it was, I think it was just me talking, but like that, that importance of being able to recognize how your various identities impact the way that you think about your work, the way that you perceive yourself as a helper, Um, the way that you interact with clients and your colleagues and like all of the ways that those, those experiences and identities that you have, that you're bringing forward from the time that you were born, either the way that society has labeled you, or you have labeled you, or your family has labeled you all of this stuff. It's so interconnected. And like, I've, I've had to do my own thinking on like, how has my upbringing and the way that my mm-hmm. parents thought about money and talked about money and work and mm-hmm. being helpful, how has that affected my mindset currently about got to do it all, got to have the, the, yeah. you know, white collar job or what I don't know, go to university, like going to college, bless my parents. I love them to death. And like, there was this time in, in college and undergrad where I was like, I need to take a year off. And they said, nope 
no. Yeah. It's like, but I need yes. to take a break. They're like, no, <laughs> you can go to community college, but you're still going to college. I'm like, but my, it's all, this. yeah. Here's a yeah. Um, so yeah, really being able to consider how your, all of the lenses that have been put onto your perspective impact mm-hmm. the way that you think of your importance in terms of mm-hmm. helping people that saviorism, like, it's just, that could be a whole other podcast. Yeah. Just identity-based uh, influences. Oh my goodness. On our work. And you know what? I'm a, sh- I'm scratch that. I was going to say, I'm ashamed. I'm not because I'm a human and I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm not fueled by cans of rosé. So I'm able at this point in my life to do some really deep reflecting on that. And, you know, again, especially like I said, my, my Latino culture and what that, what that means for being the helper and, um, you know, a woman veteran, not just a veteran, but there's that culture of veteran anyway, of right. Of like, doing this and doing the best you can and working hard. Um, but then there's the component of, you know, being a woman in the military, which adds this additional aspect of like, yeah, you should do all that stuff, but you're a woman. So you should do it harder. Like, yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I've really had the opportunity to reflect, you know, clear-minded, um, with how all of this impacts, how I approached. And again, you know, every single one of those situations that I've talked about, the VA, the the community work, um, now teaching, uh, have all been wonderful lessons for me as I'm sitting here having this conversation with you today, because I'm able to reflect and be like, okay, so clearly there were a lot of things happening, a lot of things at play. You had you, Diana, had some responsibility for your own level of burnout. We're not going to keep the system exempt, but you had some responsibility. So now with that knowledge, what are you going to do differently? Um, Which has made all of the difference in the last several months of how I approach my work, how I approach myself, how I approach my students, Mm -hmm. um, my family, all of it, all of it is, is shifted. And I have to say, you know, again, alcohol was doing me a disservice on so many levels that it goes in that I can't fuck with that column. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And being able to be reflective in that way, especially, you know, having identities that are, um, privileged, right. Mm -hmm. So like cisgender white, um, you know, high SES, or at least an SES that allows you to live a life that is not, you know, stressed out constantly by where am I going to get my food next? Right. Right. When you're able to reflect on, on all of that and utilize those, those parts of yourself that are privileged to not only change the way that you interact with the work, but also help create different ways for other people to interact with their work and be reflective in that way and say, Hey, I see these things happening within you, <clears throat> or at least I, I perceive these things to be happening. I've experienced something similar. Let's talk about it because it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way that you feel like you have to do it the best, do it hard and also do it harder and also save everybody and also numb everything out because you can't save everybody, even though you're expecting yourself to, and everybody else is yeah. supposedly expecting you to do that. Like 
there, there's a lot of really positive change that can come from the internal work that is done and recognizing our part and also saying like, fuck this system. We're not going to participate in the way that we've been expected to Yeah, for the betterment of hopefully more and more people in the field and the clients that we work with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and alcohol being part of that, like, <laughs> I think it's such a dichotomy because like, of course, in the field, there's this stigma from providers around folks who use substances and there, I don't know that the crossover is completely hundred percent, but there's a lot of, a lot of folks who are also struggling in their own way and really struggling to admit it and self-stigmatizing. Yeah. And it's just not good. No, <laughs> it's not helpful. No. And it doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a better way. And uh, yeah, I, again, I think part of it too, is just the culture is especially lately, like big alcohol and alcohol, they know what they're doing. Like there's rosé onesies, right? Like they're really marketing to like, like young career women. Right. And, and I don't know. I, and I think, yeah. Like I talked about earlier, you know, am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Like, let's just ask if this is, this is doing what we value us. Like if, if, if this thing is bringing me, mm-hmm. um, if, if this is a service to the things that I value in the life that I want. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the question we should be asking, not do I fit into this box or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and everyone's, you know, everyone's journey is going to be different, but, you know, again, just, just asking yourself and evaluating that question. Like, it doesn't mean that you have to stop for the next, you know, for your entire life and that you're doomed to be this awful, terrible, horrible person that's going to struggle with this for the rest of your life. Like, let's just start by asking the question, like, yeah. is this, is this, is this doing, doing anything? Is this adding value to my life? Right. You know? Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned for you, there was some value added, which was, it was a very, very quick way to kind of remove the pain of the day. Um, and it's, it's okay to admit that even if your, your use of substances, alcohol, or other, you know, quote unquote, addictive things, it's okay to admit that there is some benefit to you. And it's also Mm -hmm. okay to say that benefit does not outweigh the negatives in my life. So we're right here. Right. Um, And like, that's, I don't know. Sobriety is something that like, I guess for me has become so ingrained in my day-to-day life because my partner is also sober. We have zero substance of any kind in the household. And we still consider ourselves weirdo fucked up people who have very dark (laughs) senses of humor. Like it hasn't removed that fun aspect from us other than the fact that we don't like go out to the bar to hang out, which like, I never really, whatever. Um, but it's, it's such a journey to go from <clears throat> almost identifying with that, with the rosé, with the box wine, with the, the craft beer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, to admit that that might be something that you identify with and wanting to change that is also, that's a big thing to say, like, this is something I've identified with and I'm, I might need to change that. Yeah. And I think normalizing that, and if I do want to change it, it's going to be hard because that's, that's, 
I mean, think about any change, right? Any change that we make in our life, whether it's trying to eat something different, whether, you know, it's whether it's trying to not drink, whatever that is, like Mm -hmm. normalizing that, hey, I recognize this is not doing me a service and it's Mm going to be hard um, because every change or any change that we try to make as humans is difficult. Like for me, you know, the first couple of weeks, because Meyer has a lovely selection of spirits. Right. And I do all of my shopping there. I'm like, why the hell do they put this shit right in the, like, I know why, right. Like, cause of people like me, but regardless, you know, changing these little habits and then it was okay. Going, um, finally when stuff started opening up, because, you know, in the beginning, it was literally, that's how I, I drank. I would go to the store and get, you know, my wine for Meyer. But then as things started opening, like, okay, how, how am I supposed to experience uh, going to dinner with my husband, right? Like, how am I supposed to experience visiting um, my family? How am I supposed to experience? And then just doing it and recognizing like, oh shit, like I still had fun. I still, and you know, what was great. I still had fun. I didn't, I would like, I remember the first time I went out with my family I looked at my mom and my sisters because um, we were up late and they had all been drinking. I go, so this is what the end of a night here looks like. Like, (laughs) Oh my gosh. I had the the same experiences at my mom's cabin. Like, it's like, whoa, everybody. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Hey world. (laughs) I am seeing it all clearly. (laughs) Right. I'm like, oh, so this is what the end of a night here looks like. Okay. I remember. Right. And so, yeah, again, with anything lifestyle changes, doing mm-hmm. something different, getting those, you know, um, positive neural networks in our yeah. brain to start thinking about things in a different way. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it's possible it's, but normalizing that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to feel uncomfortable and it's going to feel different. Um, yeah. And also this idea, cause I hear this from myself in my own mind and also from other um, providers in the field. And I know it's not just us. Um, but this like needing to acknowledge that for a lot of us, we have that mentality of, I can do it on my own. I can manage this. I know the skills I can do it. Like cut the bullshit. Like you probably, you will probably be much better served. Even if it is one single person who can be in your corner, it doesn't have to be an AA group. It doesn't have to be all that, but like don't think that you have to go through it alone, that you have to be silent and anonymous. And that because you're a mental health provider, that it's not okay to admit that you're struggling. Like, honestly, it's okay to reach out for help from people to get through something like that. One million percent. And, you know, just recently, um, I've started being more open with my own journey, right. In this. And I'm, you know, I, I think with my students before, maybe even in the summer, like that's how I identified, right. Like I'm sober and this is what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm more like, I've just started kind of dipping my toe into being more, more um, on social media and figuring out how to use it. First of all, because that's a whole other story, but um, like, I want, I, I want to shatter this illusion of perfection in our profession in any way that I can. So whether that's, you know, a a, a student or, you know, asking about an assignment and like, can I have a rubric? And, and lately I've been like, listen, there's no rubrics. All we have is self-reflection. And so I want you to use your personal style and your clinical style and really reflect on it. How were you feeling before? How are you feeling after? 
um, and not doing that. But I want to shatter this illusion of perfection because I think that's what kept me in my shit for so long. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm, I'm being more mindful and meaning like talking about it. Cause I want other people to be like, you know what? Yeah. There's safety in this. Like, it's okay to, to share this and to talk about it. Cause you're right. You know what? You don't need a, a AA group. You don't need, um, all, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Mutual aid power and group is, is amazing. And universality is great but you should at least have one person in your corner, mm-hmm. one person that you could be like, Hey, this sucks. This is hard. Um, yeah. you don't have to do it alone. You definitely don't have to do it alone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of been my perspective in <clears throat> talking about burnout too. And what I've talked about from the beginning is like, burnout can be such an isolating experience for a lot of people. Um, And it doesn't, it's not relegated only to the field of mental health professionals or helping professionals, like in a lot of different industries to admit that you are crispy as all hell and you hate the job that you used to love, or maybe Mm -hmm. you don't hate it, but you just don't know how you can keep going on Um, to carry that on your own it just, it festers. Um, same with questions about alcohol or other substance use, all these things It just, it festers. If it's not, if there's not a process to bring that out in a place that feels safe. You know, Megan, I gotta tell you again, like I talked about in grad school when, and I'm, I'm trying to be more mindful and meaningful and how I talk about this with my students. Cause I know for me, I got the, again, the chocolate and the, you know, the, the bubble baths. I don't think there was enough education of what it actually looks like. Yeah. Right. And because, because again, I really, you know, if I had this podcast 10 years ago and was listening to it and found myself beelining it to Walgreens to get mini (laughs) Starbursts and bottles of Merlot, Mm -hmm. I'd be like, Hey, Hmm, maybe I should think about what's happening right now. Right. And instead it was just like, I had no idea what some of the signs were for burnout. And, you know, again, thought I thought I was exempt because I had been through some shit. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so grateful and fortunate that this platform is here to be able to help, um, people like me and my students and just, everybody to recognize like, Hey, it's okay to talk about this. You're not exempt, even though you want to be. <laughs> and here are some ways that can, or some potential, um, flags, if you will, yeah. that can kind of, that you can ask yourself like, Hey, am I, am I leading towards burnout and some, some things I can do about it? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself, as I've learned over the years, what it looks like, even though alcohol is not part of the picture for me, Um, it is definitely like working so much that I neglect basic self-care, like getting up to get Mm -hmm. a glass of water. So I found myself at the end of the day, very, very parched. And I'm like, holy shit, I've had like one glass of water today. Um, it has come in the form of like, I think I've said this in previous episodes, laying in bed on a Sunday night crying because I didn't know how I was going to get through the week. Um, it comes in the form of, for me, a lot of guilt around, Um, not feeling like I can do what I want to do, physical exhaustion, headaches, um, body pains that have no known origin, like just 
pain in my shoulder. And I, yeah. I have this, that's my signal. Like if my left shoulder starts to hurt, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'm reaching mm-hmm. my limit here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like it'll take time to know what your signs are. Um, but it's so important to be able to, to notice those things and recognize them and have somebody who can be kind of like, a watch out a little bit like yeah. hey you've been in the office for 5 hours straight i haven't seen you are you okay yeah like yeah it's you're not exempt no <laughs> I'm sorry no, i'm sorry not. to part no no you're i thought not i was exempt. too nope i, I thought yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that on one of your first podcasts when you're like, you know, I've been through some shit. And I was like, I, w- I thought the same thing. I'm like, oh, they're they're having this chat for these young graduate students who haven't just gotten back from two wars. Like, I'm good. I could just skip over this, you know? Like, yep. Yeah. Yep. Like, no, I've been through some shit. You know, it was funny. I was talking to my husband because I posted on my Instagram the other day, like I had this overwhelming urge to come in here and work, right? Like yeah. to get caught up. So I've made some like, very firm boundaries with myself and rules to myself. Like you were not working on the weekend. Like you're not going to step foot in that office. That office is Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. you know, just certain things, you know, to keep myself uh, in a better place. And I noticed, and me and my husband had this conversation yesterday when I know that I'm starting to get dysregulated, stressed, um, my nails are the first thing that goes. And it's kind of this, you know, the body keeps the score, yeah. like my body, like my body knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know when I start whittling down my nails, right? Like that's, that's, that's number one. I look at my nails <laughs> and I say, <laughs> I'm looking at my nails right now and my left hand, my nails are gone and my right hand, the nails are still there. So I'm like, maybe I'm halfway. <laughs> See, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yep. This is little signs, like just little, little signs, yeah, little signs. They add up like the nails. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I also notice like when I'm more stressed out, I start to get blemishes on my skin more and I'm like, shit, mm-hmm. I'm stressed. And that makes me more stressed because I don't want blemishes. But I'm like, nope, nope. It's just a sign. It's a good, it's a good measuring stick Yeah, Take it for what it is it's information, right? It's information. And, and I think that's been the coolest part of, of not drinking is I'm taking in a lot of information. God bless my new therapist. <laughs> she goes, you know, Diana, you're unpacking a lot. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, cause I'm sober. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Once that goes away, holy shit. Does some stuff come yeah. out? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it is, it's, I'm like, I'm able to literally take in new information about everything about myself, yeah. surroundings, how I'm, you know, again, how I'm acting, how I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, what's happening in my body, all of this stuff without having that mask of substances in my body to just kind of numb all that away, you yeah. know, and um, it's both frightening and really exciting at the same time, because mm-hmm. here I am, you know, almost 40 years old. And I feel like for the first time, I'm getting to know myself and my body. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really good thing because I'm also setting, I'm doing things to be able to protect, you know, myself as well. So I can just be, you know, a better, better, better human, better professional, better wife, better bonus mom, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, too. So it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. I agree. It is exciting. Yeah. It's tough work, but it's exciting. And there's, yeah. I, I agree. You, you tend to learn a lot about yourself when you take away um, some of those things that were 
maybe I'll just say they were protecting you for the time that they needed to protect yeah. you. And then, yeah. then they had to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Um, you know, there's, there's this element too of, of self-compassion, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of things are in service of survival, you know, mm-hmm. our, and this is a perfect COVID right now is a perfect example. It, humans were not wired for this level of stress ongoing, right? Like, no, not at all. Yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of us therapists included are, um, have all been in survival mode for a really, really long time. And yeah, sometimes we do have to step back and ask that question, like, is what I'm doing to survive in service of, of the life that I truly want? And for me, the answer was no. Yeah. 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 And you get to, you get to choose differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. cool. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't often talk about, um, sobriety stuff any, anymore, although I am venturing more into that. And I always find that I, I do get very lit up with excitement in talking yeah. about it because of, because it was a very transformative thing for me too. When I went through that, even though I wasn't technically in the field working with people, um, I can absolutely a hundred, hundred percent agree that it's, you learn a lot, <laughs> you yeah. learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I think we are nearing the end of our time, but I do want to kind of give you the opportunity here to speak directly to the audience. Um, and, and the thing that I like to ask my guests is, you know, if you're going to leave the audience with something to chew on, something to think about um, at the end of our show here today, what would you want them to know? Oh man, that's a big question. I know. Um, yeah, there's so much. Yeah. There's so much again, because I'm, I'm still in this whole learning, learning process myself. You know what I mean? Um, I would say really examine, um, cause this is what's, what's been really beneficial for me is really examine the things that you can and can't fuck with, right? Yes. <laughs> the things, the things that, that bring true joy and value to your lives and the things that, um, are potentially Mm self-destructive. And if you notice that alcohol substances are one of those things that kind of fall in that, that category of this is not helping me in any way, um, that does not make you a failure or less than, or it makes you a human, a human being like the rest of us just trying to make it and survive through life. And you're not alone, right? You're not alone in this. Find one other human, um, that you can connect with. And there's so many of us out there. You're not alone in that. Um, and especially this for my students, mostly for students or early career folks, um, protecting your time, I think, and protecting your time and really doing some reflection around like how white supremacy culture is showing up in your behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, so much of it in reflecting back was in service of perpetuating white supremacy for me, like saving, I have to be the one to help. They're not going to do it right. I have to do it. And so really looking at how I can protect myself, um, and not continue to perpetuate white supremacy. Um, 
I think is really important and, and recognizing that even if your early career, even if you're an intern, even if you're just starting off, like you still have a voice and you can still, you know, take up space and advocate for yourself to be able to take care of yourself because, because you're, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. hundred mm-hmm. percent. I like that. Yeah. All right. And, um, there's so much more, but I think that's it for right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always open to having repeat guests because I know yeah. that these conversations can, um, they can just open up so many other avenues for conversation, which mm-hmm. all of them are valuable and none of them can fit all together in an hour and a half. I know. <laughs> I know. There's so much. There's yeah. so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I'm sure that there are a lot of folks who found um, they found comfort in in being able to hear about you know the stuff that we talked about today, the stuff that you brought up around community, mutual aid, sobriety, all that stuff. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And I hope that whoever or wherever you are, you can start having more conversations in your circles of support about better ways to support ourselves and to support each other through burnout. If you like today's show, please make sure to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on there to help get the word out. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, I would absolutely love to have you join the Mental Status Patreon community, which is now officially open. When you join Patreon, you'll get access to a supportive community of like-minded mental health professionals, where I will be offering a ton of high-quality, deeper-dive content related to burnout, with everything from patron-exclusive podcast episodes and monthly webinars, to access to the Mental Status Facebook community, Q&A sessions, and more. To join the Patreon community, head on over to patreon.com slash mentalstatuspod and pick the level of support that fits best for you. Again, that is patreon.com slash mentalstatuspod. Thanks so much, y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I will see you again soon.